to begin. All right, we are beginning then. So, to do that, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians, first chapter, and we will be going through verses 17 through 25 this morning. So I shall read. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Father, thank you this morning for your word, and Lord, uh, help me, help us to have it go down into our hearts, past our minds as we listen, and help us to draw us near to you, and to know you better, to love you more, and to be all the more grateful that you have once for all delivered your word to us so that we might believe and be saved. So the word of the cross, once for all delivered to the saints, must not, by human manipulation, be emptied of its power, because, as Paul says, to us who are being saved, that's we who are called, it is the power of God to do so. And yet, Apparently, the true God-powered infinity horsepower cross of Christ can, by humans adulterating it, be emptied of its power. So Paul says, be very careful with it, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This portion of scripture near the beginning of 1 Corinthians comes after Paul addresses some disagreements in the church. He admonishes the church that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you. The disagreements included which leader in the church is best to follow and 
issues about who is baptizing whom. Then he goes on to his favorite topic, the gospel. And so note, the first few words of our passage set the stage as we begin in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. He continues about the character of his preaching and how to defend this gospel. This gospel, which is the power of God. One can note, Paul has the same focus as he commences Romans, stating about the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation. So about Paul's proper preaching commitment, he only briefly refers to it in our passage. The rest of his words about the gospel itself, and yet it's a very important point. He says, as we begin in verse 17, he preaches like this, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Then at one other point in this book, he states simply, we preach Christ crucified. So the cross of Christ and Christ crucified are at the core gospel Paul preaches, and it is what Christ sent him to do. So Paul doesn't preach with eloquent wisdom, not in a philosophical or oratorical style popular of that time, no effort by Paul to do as others in a Greek-influenced society and rely upon oratorical excellencies to perhaps sweeten the gospel or make its demands more attractive, that's rejected by Paul. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, the realm of worldly wisdom. He will go on to speak of wisdom six more times in our passage, contrasting worldly wisdom with God's wisdom. Paul's preaching rejects eloquent wisdom. Why? As we noted, he finishes the sentence with, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is not concerned with much here, just the cross of Christ. He's not rejecting preaching with this eloquent wisdom because he'll fail to do it endearingly so they won't listen to him, nor because they may not like him or may even hate him, nor because they may reject a non-eloquent message and say, who is this babbler? A main reason he refers to it in the context of Corinth is, at that time and place, great oratory was well received and even expected. A person was popular who could give a winning presentation for the listeners, impressing the audience with a commanding maybe even manipulative rhetorical display. Sophisticated speech. Such presentations of wisdom easily led the listener to be endeared to the speaker, whatever his content may be. He said that so well. Such an attractive presentation. Excellent command of the language. In a modern sense, in the American church, Maybe not beautiful displays of oratory, but we can think of the danger of a pastor taking a compliment from a member. 
I really enjoyed your sermon today. Meaning truth-filled biblical proclamation or uplifting self-assurance. Assurance of man-centered righteousness or blessings or maybe peripheral points which obscure the cross and the radical claims of Christ upon a believer's life. Justification of sinning without the justification of the sinner? Forgiveness without repentance? Talk of grace absent the cross? Many times over many years, I visited another church in another state and overheard pastoral compliments to a well-said sermon. But what I heard was, based upon his illustrations, the pastor sounded like he had had a wonderful vacation. And I would note, I did not hear him once mention the word sin. I never heard it. Paul is concerned with the pure, undiluted cross of Christ because it is the central doctrine of Christianity, a crucified redeemer for our sins, Jesus. And note, the key thing Paul is concerned with regarding his non-eloquent message, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And why is it a massive problem if it were to be emptied of its power? He answers in the next verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then Paul will go on, starting in verse 19, to begin contrasting folly and wisdom. God's wisdom, man's wisdom. What stumbling blocks are always in the way for both Jews and non-Jews? But here in verse 18, he declares this word of the cross is the power of God. So what is this power of God? Well, this word in Greek is dunamis, from which we get our word for dynamite, a word which appears many, many times in the scriptures about God. And if we believe God is absolutely, totally sovereign over all, then we know why we say he is omnipotent, all-powerful. One good thing to always do when one wants to contemplate God's power is to think of the physical, particularly looking around to see all of creation and recall it's God's doing. And we know about Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Of course, it's many miracles while here, God raising him from the dead, now ruling and reigning from the right hand of the Father, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Put succinctly in the Psalms, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. But for now, those examples of God's power are only a reminder he is, in fact, all-powerful. But of course, power in the physical realm is not the kind of power of God that is the word of the cross, although God's power in the physical always reminds us there is no appropriate metaphor since it is absolute and beyond our ability to fully comprehend it. 
But here in our verses, he refers to God's power twice. The power of the cross of Christ and the word of the cross. Paul ensures it retains its power, preaching by it not with words of eloquent wisdom. So when we get to the end of verse 17, a person using what Paul calls eloquent wisdom has likely emptied the power of the cross of Christ for the listener, deflected from the gospel. Then in verse 18, he tells us the proper proclamation of the cross has two results. It is rejected as folly by those on their way to perishing, but for others, those who are called, who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then for the rest of today's verses, he goes on to contrast these two. The power which rejects man-centered rhetorical power of eloquent speech magnifies God's power, his power to save. Paul confirms the way he proclaims the gospel a bit later in this book, telling them he doesn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, just Christ crucified. In Corinth, he was with them in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but rather, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. You may have noticed times God uses men who see themselves as weak and inadequate to serve, can we say powerless. Moses said he wasn't eloquent. Can't do it, God. He was slow of speech and tongue. And Jeremiah, at his calling, told the Lord, I don't know how to speak, for I am only a youth. And as you're being wise as serpents and innocent as doves as you go about your Christian life, and you happen to be placed before evil, unbelieving leaders, the scriptures tell us in your weakness, the Holy Spirit will be with you to speak the truth to power. Paul, he's not ashamed of the gospel, it being the power of God unto salvation. Paul says he has this gospel treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs not to him, but to God. If Paul must boast, he says he boasts in things that show his weakness, including his thorn in the flesh, not wisdom of men, but the power of God. So yes, Paul is giving a roadmap based on his experience in Corinth about how to proclaim the word of the cross, not with words of eloquent wisdom, as noted there in Corinth, in weakness and in fear and much trembling and in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, the power of God, not Paul. Paul is relying upon a clear, straightforward proclamation of the word of the cross, knowing it is God who works by the Holy Spirit, by his power to bring about new birth. A short time later here in 1 Corinthians, Paul states succinctly how he relies upon God's power and salvation as he continues the task God has assigned to him 
in preaching the gospel. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Doesn't leave any room for boasting, but only relying on God's power. So then in verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And there in Isaiah, God is speaking of judgments which will come upon Judah for disobedience. The Assyrian king was threatening Judah, Jerusalem. That portion of Isaiah, which Paul quotes here in our verse 19, declares Judah's deliverance won't come by the wisdom or strength or cunning or craftiness of the leaders in devising strategies of success, but by God and his wisdom. And in fact, the Jews dealing with the invading army does fail, even though they tried mightily and the good King Hezekiah was ruling. Not until Isaiah came along and said God was going to miraculously intervene and send the Assyrians away did rescue come. So their wisdom plan was a dud. Their discernment was thwarted. And so Paul uses that analogy about proper, proper proclamation of the gospel. Not eloquent man-centered efforts infused with man-centered wisdom to deliver it to itching ears that may love imagined good news, but relying upon God's power by the Holy Spirit to change hearts by sticking to the truths of the gospel. Paul's word of the cross is knowing nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul condemns those who through their man-based wisdom see the gospel as folly and he uses the very strong word destroy. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. God's power in the word of the cross does a lot of destroying for those who Paul says us who are being saved because it's living and active, sharp as a sword. It often does some destroying by what Hebrews tells us, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And when the Holy Spirit moves on a heart, yes, those thoughts and intentions are seen in a whole new way by us who are being saved. That's what Paul says happens in sin destruction by the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation through the word of the cross. For example, as it came to many of the Thessalonians. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And what must it do as it turns people from darkness to light? Paul later tells us plainly how he goes about wielding the sword of the Spirit. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. Destroy what? Arguments and every lofty opinion raised 
against the knowledge of God, most likely to include wise worldly wisdom, which concludes what? I am basically a good person. I've made mistakes, but I have overcome them with my good. And in our modern American, culturally cemented with steel reinforcements, individualism, from that wisdom, many will simply conclude they do not accept what God says about them or the world or anything. And this individualism provides a cocoon to make any decision about personal autonomy. I shall stomp my foot, talk back firmly to God, and make him see his errors, even concluding it may be true, but I don't accept it. The extent of this individualistic bubble is made clear by persons now saying, I shall decide whether I am a man or a woman and act accordingly. No, destruction comes to that wisdom if you are one who is being saved on the way to salvation since before birth, actually before the creation of the world. Not self-justification, rather, the fear of God is given to you freely, which is the beginning of God's wisdom in your life and the destruction of wise worldly wisdom. Not just words on a page, but this word of the cross becomes operative, effective, actualized by the power of God on hearts to know this all-powerful holy God. How? Well, our all-powerful God started it all, creation, with light. Light to do away with darkness. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Meanwhile, what does Paul say God does in the darkened, sin-filled hearts of those who are being saved. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The mercy of God through the word of the cross, the word which promises each will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive their due, Paul says, it makes certain we know that wonderful fear of the Lord, and thus he lives to persuade others by the gospel. Then, as Paul goes on in verse 20, he refers to three types of persons. Where is the wise, the scribe, the debater, he asks. Paul says, where are they? Not as though he's looking for good ones. But similarly, when he finishes up in chapter 15 of this book, death, where is your victory? That doesn't ultimately exist for believers. Same here. Where is the wise? Who can discover the right formula to explain the universe and creation? To explain right and wrong. Keep looking. But don't turn your eyes to the cross of Christ. There is a pathway to true wisdom, Paul says a bit later on in this book. 
If you find yourself confidently being wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. How? As Paul says in here, through the folly of what we preach, the gospel, saving believers. And the debater, we have an example of this when we come to verse 22, where Paul says, Jews demand signs, as they did many times in the New Testament, supposedly to then maybe believe who Jesus said he was, the incarnate Son of God. So after naming these types of people, Paul goes on, and one must pay careful attention to the words here. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So in this brief section, the word wisdom appears three times and is contrasted with folly. And the key, there is the world's wisdom, which we read, God made foolish, and there is God's wisdom. Note the reason for the main foundation of the world's wisdom being upside down is plainly stated in both Proverbs and the Psalms. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So if God is rejected, we default to our worldly wisdom. So now, let's briefly consider this worldly wisdom recently on full display with the new amazing James Webb Telescope. It is a triumph of mankind's achievements to find the secrets of the universe's beginnings. After the new images came, a well-known professor of astronomy and physics at LSU said what is common amongst his peers. Astronomy, the stars, planets, and galaxies are perhaps second only to the heart as a cultural link to the world of science and has likely been so since humans gained consciousness. The topic interests nearly everyone and its images and references to it are scattered throughout every form of human cultural expression, literature, music, theater, film, and painting, photography, and ceramics. This new observatory will enable scientists to answer fundamental questions about our universe and how it evolved to be hospitable to our existence. So even the deepest looks into the unfathomable reaches of God's creation will not result in true faith in believing or even in the existence of the God responsible for all God's handiwork they are studying. So it continues. The desire for wisdom, for being wise in one's own eyes, after starting a long time ago. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
she took of its fruit and ate. For a bit more clarity of verse 20 and 21, here's another commentator's translation of this section. Has not God made a fool of the world's wisdom? For since, in God's wisdom, it was not through wisdom that the world came to know God, it pleased God to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is proclaimed. That's us. We believe through the foolishness of what is proclaimed the gospel. So we could go on and on and on about the world's wisdom and how vacuous it can be. But one last quote about the world's wisdom by a commentator, which says it so well. There is no manifestation of God which man's wisdom does not twist until it has made God in his own image. Meanwhile, as to God's wisdom, let's have John Calvin give it a go. The wisdom of God means the workmanship of the whole world, which is an illustrious token and clear manifestation of his wisdom. Calvin then goes on to say that Everyone who looks upon the world and the works of God must, if he had sound judgment, break forth in admiration of God. Uh, but that doesn't happen absent God's saving grace through the gospel. Up until now, Paul has made it clear God made foolish the wisdom of the world. And this is confirmed as we come toward our last verses for today. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. As for the Jews, well, they had the scriptures and believed they were, in fact, God's revelation. They had access to his wisdom. But they focused much upon signs. They were, can we say, used to God giving signs as we often see throughout the scriptures when God had something important to reveal. And for Jesus, we know the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. But they did not get the kind of sign they wanted from heaven. But really, no sign would have changed their minds and hearts. Jesus makes it clear there really is no sign which will bring about proper change in them. Jesus tells the story of the rich man being tormented in hell. The rich man asked Jesus to send the poor man Lazarus to his brothers. Send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But he's told rather... They should be warned by reading Moses and the prophets. But the rich man insists, no, not that. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And the final reply, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So even though Jews demand signs, verse 23, Paul says does something else. 
We preach Christ crucified, the word of the cross, the gospel, which is a stumbling block to Jews, so no sign like they wanted. Instead, they got a crucified Messiah. The unfathomable humiliation of the cross and Jesus' death, a Messiah forsaken by God, a sign they could not accept. It was an affront, a stumbling block, as they continued to pursue God by good works rather than by faith. Isaiah used that language about the Lord of hosts, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to the Israelites. Peter and Paul later used that same language to speak of stumbling unbelievers, those who pursue God, not by faith, but as if it were by works of man. Meanwhile, in our verse 22, Paul says, Greeks seek wisdom. As they seek it and are confronted with the preaching of Christ crucified, they conclude it is folly. The Greeks, the Gentiles, especially in Corinth, were about success in everyday affairs, the things which bring about mastering one's life and attaining social approval by their efforts. Thus, a gospel given by eloquent wisdom would fit well for these Gentiles. But of course, a preaching which substitutes a message of personal success for the cross of Christ is a devious counterfeit. So here is this Messiah who willingly accepted suffering and death to Greeks. That is failure and dishonorable. No thanks. But a suffering Messiah was an affront not just to Gentiles, even Peter before the cross. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But you have to give it to the Greeks. These Gentiles, some credit. They didn't have the Old Testament, which revealed a monotheistic God who revealed himself in abundance. But they did have a lot of so-called gods fully integrated into all areas of life, even one to an unknown God. They had wisdom of the worldly wise expressed in their gods at least acknowledging there was obviously an outside agent somehow working. Otherwise, where did all this creation and thinking and feeling come from? But they were not wise enough. They had not graduated from the college of pure secularism as we moderns have. They did not realize that all was a spontaneous eruption out of nothing, creating everything as we moderns who have advanced in our wisdom of the wise. A material world. So a modern, steeped in Darwin, natural selection, might say to start with, all you have is that Bible. There are no signs, and it's folly anyway. It speaks of the unseen, the spiritual realm and judgments, defines what is evil and tells me I can't be a good person to cover up my mistakes. Confirming the world did not know God through wisdom. So when they eat a nice juicy strawberry or peach, 
and marvel at how delicious it is, they are thankful it's self-created to be perfectly suited to their taste, along with the warm sunshine and the fresh air which fits perfectly with their self-evolved lungs. On and on and on and on, suppression of the truth. So finally, Paul summarizes his points. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This folly, this weakness of God, this word of the cross, this gospel, this power of God's for salvation, it survives intense persecution. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It survives false teachers and their teaching. It's impossible to extinguish. It survives factions and infighting in the church. There is always the remnant holding to the truth. It changes lives forever, now and for eternity. Those our great God has called. So this foolishness of God, this folly of the gospel, through the weakness of a crucified Messiah, its result, God's mercy upon you, believer, by his power he has shown in your heart to give you that light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That power to help you in all temptations, to endure in troubles, even to love your enemies. So you can do every good work of faith by his power. We look around the world, the universe, and be astonished at God's power as he fills all, rules all, sustains all. The wisdom of God given to you reminds you of the hope, the inheritance he has given to you all by his power toward us who believe. Like Paul, driven by all he did for whatever God called him to do as he ran the race to the glory of God. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me to beat his body, to fulfill his calling, to live for Christ and see dying as gain, to always giving thanks for his salvation. As Paul tells the Ephesians, he's praying for more wisdom, more hope, live knowing our glorious inheritance and, and what is the immeasurable <clears throat> greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, birthing us anew, saving us, transforming, pruning, and purifying us. Will we who are called finish the race? Yes, or go asunder? Not if God isn't powerful enough. So what do we conclude? The wisdom of the world is destroyed by the gospel. No need for eloquent wisdom in sharing or preaching it. What some would say is God's great display of weakness, the weakness of God, of folly, his all-powerful son hanging powerless on the cross that day. But our all-powerful God would soon raise his crucified son 
who took the full wrath poured out by his father for our sins, raise him from the dead by the working of his great might and seat him at his right hand. And then, then God's power unleashed across the world in changing hearts. Can I say earthquakes in the hearts of those he calls to believe? Sin exposing, rebellion crushing, wisdom destroying, sword wielding, heart piercing, soul awakening, chain removing, pit evacuating, hell emptying, sight restoring, Satan thwarting, filthy, rag removing, life changing, eternity changing, God glorifying earthquakes in the hearts around the world. God showed that his gospel is indeed the power of God unto salvation. Father, we are so blessed that we have your word and we know that you are all powerful, all sovereign, beyond our comprehension. And this all powerful God, we know, is only good, holy, perfect, perfect in justice perfect in saving, perfect in ruling and reigning. And so, Lord, we do with joy believe your word that says, preach the gospel, share the gospel, know it. Look to the cross, all you who are doubting, who are perishing. Look to it and see where your future is with Jesus, you who are called God, we pray that you would do a miracle in the hearts of anyone here today who is not believing in God. We know that the only solution for the perishing in the world, and Lord, as we see the darkness reigning over our land, Lord, we know the only solution is the gospel, is changing the hearts of people so that they may see the glorious King Jesus who saves to the uttermost. So God, help us today to go Lord, with this treasure in our jars of clay to show that this all-powerful gospel and work that you do is not from us, but only from you. Amen.